You are about to listen to an episode of Trilove about David Lynch's 1980 film Elephant Man. The movie portrays the abuse and exploitation of a disabled man. Uh, it condemns these actions uh, pretty explicitly, but they are in the movie and they are part of our discussion on this episode. Thank you for listening. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. I think Jason needs to go. We need to do that every time. I feel like that's really stupid. Every every podcast does that every time. No, we need to do it every the first po- time. Every podcast does a movie really need to start true. with the title? Like, what podcast do you listen to where I, they don't introduce themselves at the top? There's every a couple podcast. comedy ones where they don't. I mean, I, if we have I, an I intro, a, there's, there can be a cold intro. You think that people are going like, to know and like us so well that they'll remember our names? Can that's we just have an intro that doesn't, like a template? And then we don't, do we have sure. a template? Like, that's not a bad idea. That's only copy and paste. Hello, my name is Harry. And like we yeah. just do one of those. That would be great if we could do that. <laughs> I like that. We have to make it not. I our hate voice. being like I'm John for everyone. Like fuck yeah. that. Hello, I'm Aaron. Nice, John. I'm Harry. Jason, you're listening to Try Love. We're going to be talking about Elephant Man. The Elephant Man. The Elephant. Is it the? I think so. Okay, The Elephant Man. David Lynch, 1980. Right. Yep. Starting. Just what I remember from the Amazon. John Hurt as John Merrick, the the Elephant Man, and uh, Anthony Hopkins as. Dr. Treves. Some dude that Dr. helps him. Treves, that was I think it was Treves. Name. I feel shitty that I don't That's remember. That's about right. That. Not as know. bad as Anthony Hopkins feels about you forgetting one of his iconic roles. Sorry, yeah. Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. He's very nice in this movie. Not very Anthony Hopkins-y. Is he, though? Is he a good man or a bad man? That's true. We'll get he, into he's it. He's a good man. He's a good Is man. Is he? I'll say it. Yeah, he's Whoa. a good man. I think... I don't know if I agree with I that. I think Harry might be interested. We could get into that right now. We could just start no, with sh- that. We, sh- we should lay it out. So okay. John Merrick was a was born disfigured. It's based on a true story. Yes, it correct? is. It's based on a true story that happened in I believe John Merrick was born in nineteen or in eighteen um, seventy or maybe the late eighteen sixties, and he died in eighteen ninety um, when he was twenty one years old, or maybe he was a little bit older than that. So I this movie done is set research. like, but r- it is yeah, it's set right as his right. It's okay. set in um, the eighteen the late eighteen hundreds in um, London, right? I believe. Yeah, I mean, they call it the hospital that they're in. That's the, London. the Royal London Hospital. Okay. Um, relatively closely following, I mean, there, I'm sure there are all sorts of uh, creative artistic license, but it was based on a memoir that the doctor wrote and um, pretty closely follows John Merrick's life. Uh, spoilers, I guess. Is this, a, this is a spoiler cast, we can, right? We can say, yeah, we, we can spoiled use spoilers. Things before. Can I quick interject here? I saw this on Wikipedia uh, supposedly his name was actually Joseph, and yeah. John is yep. just – it's uh, – It just became John? Or I don't know whether it's from this film specifically, is but – It's like Henry and Hank? It's a, no, it's just a – it's like a weird um, mistake that people always make, which is like really like ironic and terrible in this specific instance. <laughs> that yeah, like, of there being a movie based on his life or at least and, his And just this, this movie specifically about how like, like this person should be able to define – 
how they who they are and mm-hmm. how they want to be remembered. And it's like, yeah, but not your name, dude. <laughs> yeah, I like, guess uh, your name's not your name. Your Christian name is uh, and the Anthony Hopkins. What was his name in real life? Because I thought it was something different. Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I believe the act. Oh yeah, that's that's. Can it, we look you. that up, Aaron? We can cut this part. I can look that up. No, we're not going to cut it. This is live feed here. Uh, live it it says it fun. does say Frederick uh, Treves. They pronounce Trevis? it Treves in the movie. Treves. Treves. Let's go with Treves. Yeah, I think that's better. That rogue at the end slipped in there. But Treves. Yeah, Frederick Treves was his actual of, name. Not a really good accent work in this movie. There's something about the name. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the right name, but the name John Merrick said in Anthony Hopkins dulcet. London accent. And when he has to slow it down to get John, John to repeat. John Ooh, I like Merrick. That. He like it's so, into like that there's arc. something the the mouthfeel of that was very yeah. uh, <laughs> the mouthfeel yeah. of Anthony Hopkins' voice <laughs> in like my it. ears. It was good. That's the review right there. Uh do you want to talk about his performance? Because I think it's one of his best that I've seen. Anthony Hopkins? Yeah. Do we, yeah. Do we need to talk any more about the plot? Well like, the plot we is yeah. I think we should lay out what happens before we talk about like what we thought of what happened. Please. Yeah. Okay. So he is like beginning of the movie, John Merrick is up with uh, Carney's with uh, Street Fair. Right, he's right. part of a freak show. Mm-hmm. He's uh, the freak show's sort of primary or most hyped attraction. Right, their biggest seller, the elephant his treasure, is the, what they call him. The guy, Mister Bites, is the ringleader, the circus yes. master. Yep. He calls him my treasure. He's like, this right. is his money maker type mm-hmm. of guy. Uh, movie starts well. It opens with a shot of. Um, Supposedly, his mom being trampled by elephants, which is yes. a hilarious, like mythical addition. Right, I, guess, I on think that, David Lynch's yeah, part. and or like maybe raped. I think yeah, people. that's what I got from it when I first that's saw what it. I, like mm. when I saw it, which I is wanted like, to say, is she being raped by elephants? Like obviously, that's that's the sort of um, the myth of the elephant man that that the circus ringleader uh, bites applies to the story in order mm-hmm. to give it mystique. Um, and so there is like a there's a framing there, right, where like it. From a certain point of view, it makes sense that we would start with this sort of like mythical dehumanizing story right. about how John Merrick came to be uh, in in a sort of very sensational way. Like it keeps cutting to her screaming face and then the elephant like rearing uh, because it's like trampling her or whatever. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I really liked those. I think a lot of people felt those moments were out of place, the David Lynch type um, sequences with the mom and like at the very and end just too. Just a series of pipes. Yeah, and I really like those. And that's stuff. What, like, oh, I loved those, that shit. Yeah. No, that, that was the most David Lynch movie that this movie ever got, which that, is part, that, of, my, yes, part of my negative. Oh, really? About, well, I just the fact that there was so little actual like David Lynch flavor, I guess. I'm just a sucker for Interesting. it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, um, he is part of a freak show. Right. Uh, eventually catches the eye of Anthony Hopkins' character, Dr. Treves. That's the first scene, right, is that Treves comes to the freak show having heard about the Elephant Man and wanting to study him from an um, anatomical point of view because he's a medical doctor and surgeon and with the uh, Royal London Hospital, Treves is. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, eventually, through a series of events, taken in by Dr. Treves. Uh, stays at the ward in a, like a secluded ward at the top of a bell tower at the hospital. Right. Very which, Quasimodo. Yeah. Uh, really hard to to ignore that. Um, yeah. They purposely isolate him from the other patients. Yeah. It's called the isolation ward. Yeah. Uh, and it is very. Uh, yeah. Quasimodo-y. A lot of people seem to already know who the Elephant Man is, despite him being like a back alley freak show uh, right. headliner. And there, there's also like constant cutaways or not cutaways to the newspaper but constant references to news articles being written about John Merrick both when he is first introduced to the hospital and then when he eventually enters London society he becomes this sort of um, 
this societal curiosity um, mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. And he, and that's kind of what the movie's about is slowly like reintroducing him to or him being reintroduced rather to quote unquote civilized society mainstream rather than you know being taken out of a dank back alley uh, with the help of the doctor and the hospital and sort of the push and pull of whether or not that's ethical to do and whether he's in a better situation effects, now than he was. The effects of it on both Merrick and the people around him and what it sort of suggests about how we use people mm-hmm. as a whole. Um, uh, so but that, yeah, that's, that's the wise, summary. Yeah, there, there are twists and turns, right? Like uh, the, the ringmaster eventually comes in with the help of a corrupt hospital guard, sort of reabducts him, mm-hmm. takes him back to America, I yeah. believe. Well, um, he's, he's speaking in French at one point. Oh, is he? Bites, bites but he goes overseas. In French. Yes. Yeah, so he takes oh, I guess that would still be overseas. <laughs> Dumb. Uh, true, true. Uh, finds his way back, just a short... A right. short detour to another country, which uh, is really kind of slammed in there in the last half hour of the movie. Uh, kind of, yeah. It sort of serves as a as a um, faux climax before mm-hmm. the real climax. Uh, I like that segment a lot, but that's um, yeah. Me. That's uh, we've gotten into too much plot just because. Sure, it's like it's a really like um, simple film i mean i think if anyone reads about the actual story just like a you know brief log line they, they get the gist of it but the film is more about um i think like the internal um struggle of him of the elephant man and also of course just the relationship of him and anthony and that's really what it deals with not so much um like the complicated like this is what roger ebert's review was saying is like oh we don't understand how he gets to speak like a human like how he gets yep. to like um I'll just come come right out and say it, make some enemies. I think Ebert's review is dog shit. And yeah. I think that if it wasn't written by Ebert, it wouldn't be a professional quality review. On the whole on the whole, I agree. I think it's an incredibly like negative. He's really pushing he, the boundaries of what actually was in the movie and what was important yeah. about it. And he does like a, a terrible, like amateur criticism thing where he just like he decides before he sees the movie, uh um presumably what he thinks the movie is going to be about Wrote and the then evaluates the it on that basis. He like applies a lens to the movie and then is like, well, according to what I wanted out of this movie, it mm-hmm. didn't do a good job of giving that to me. And it's like, all right, like why did you watch the movie? Yeah. It seems like he wanted more details about how the elf man became to be more humanized. Like he wanted to be. And it's like, I, I just, think like, that would have been imagine, so tedious. Imagine going to a David Lynch movie and expecting details. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that too. And, <laughs> and categorically, I think I just, and this is not a review of Ebert's review, so we don't have to like dwell on this, but like, I just disagree that this movie is about John Merrick. I think it's about, this, uh, essentially the society around John Merrick. Mm-hmm. I think that they spend a lot more time with the people and how they interact with Definitely. and are affected by John Merrick than yep. about him. Like, calling this a John Merrick character study isn't even accurate from my point of view. No, it's not. Um, I, I, I agree with that much. I don't think that the level of, like, attention that he got, development that his character got, sort of our look at him, I don't think that was strong enough for me to be able to, like, I don't know. I wasn't going to identify with the character in mm-hmm. any respect, but to be able to understand, I guess, the character, there wasn't quite enough of that for me. Maybe it was just slow. But uh, Yeah, I don't think you're supposed to really understand him. It is like – it almost is like a freak show for the audience in a way where it's like we're like judging this character off the bat and then you slowly try to like – it's like almost like you're in Anthony Hopkins' shoes where you try to like find the human in him overall or I mean over time. But that's what I, that's what I felt like. It is about the relationship of them, and like like I feel like you're kind of judging him, like from Anthony Hopkins' mm-hmm. perspective, if that makes sense. I, so I but. guess I guess my opinion of that is a <coughs> synthesis of both. Like I do think that his character was underserved, yeah. but I don't think that like going into his story, his backstory, how he got, how he learned to speak, as Eber was complaining about. I don't think that was kind of the point of the movie. I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I, f- I feel like his character was underserved, I guess. Just in that, and, and maybe this is a weakness of the movie, but I think that it was more, I think that his character was meant to be sort of self-evident um, in that he was, you know, a person who was very affected by his uh, disabilities, but mm-hmm. and who was more affected even by society's treatment of him because of these disabilities um, and his sort of disfigurement or disabilities uh, um, could serve as, as like a larger metaphor about what we do with <laughs> people we can't um, categorize, I guess, or people mm-hmm. people who, who don't provide um, a, a service, I guess. Uh, that was something that really stuck out to me. But anyway. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. Aaron, you've been awfully quiet. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I have a few thoughts. I think just in regard to the Roger Ebert thing, maybe it's briefly worth mentioning. And I think Ebert had a kind of interesting history with David he Lynch He did. He films. had a weirdly contentious relationship with Lynch, right? For three years after Eraserhead came out? He, I don't know about that. I do know that he did. He liked Eraserhead quite a bit when he saw that. This was his only other movie, right? Uh, yes, but I was going to oh, say... Oh, um, Yeah, no, you're right. Elephant Man was the... Second movie of his, but in, uh, Eraserhead up until Mulholland Drive um, didn't like anything that he did. Really? Uh, you know, I don't. I guess I don't know about maybe some short films or whatever. But sure. I, I do know that he kind of famously trashed this and Blue Velvet, um, and know, Wild maybe, at Heart, and Wild wow. at Heart, and Wild at Heart, and Wild at Heart. Um, I think Wild at Heart fared a little better than Blue Velvet and The Elephant Man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Wild at Heart maybe he gave that two stars. <laughs> um, he called it a dishonest movie. I remember Wild that at Heart. specifically, yeah. Yeah, and I've I've always kind of, you know, I think I, I disagree with him, but I think I can see it, right? Like, I, I think you, there is a, a reading of Lynch's films that does, that does kind of conform to what Ebert generally was saying, specifically in regard to Blue Velvet. I, I, can, I can see watching that movie feeling uncomfortable and feeling like maybe it's not deserved. I think mm, sure. That's, a bit of the point, but I yeah. think often defending a movie by saying, oh, that's the point is kind of maybe a weak defense. For sure. Yeah, you'll notice, uh, like, I almost came up, I, like, rubbed up against saying that about the opening of The Elephant Man. But, I like, outright I, said it. Yeah, but I don't, like, I really cotton to that, right? Like, it still sucks. Sure. Like, sure. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think, sorry to make but this. But he's wrong. I mean, he's wrong. This movie's great. Yeah, um, it's a very good, it's a very good movie, I think, yes. But, but um, I can often, with Lynch, I can often... I can often see the criticisms as long as they're a little more fleshed out than, yeah. you know, that didn't make sense. Or. This movie actually sort of avoided my main criticism of of Lynch. And, like, maybe this is a criticism more of, of the way that we think and talk about Lynch films than Lynch himself, because I don't know if this is actually, uh, if this actually speaks to his movies. But, like, I really don't like solving for X in movies. Hmm. Probably because when I was in college, I liked it a lot. But, like, I, I hate, I really hate the idea that, like, like oh, like, good movies are movies you really have to think about and you have to figure out and solve in order for them to affect you. And it's like, if you didn't get it, that's your problem, not the movie's problem, right? Like, like if I don't get it, it's probably the movie's problem, right? Like, the reason why, like, Fight Club is a failure of a movie because people decided to go out and do fight clubs after fight club came out <laughs> sure. in my opinion like that that's the movie's fault it's not necessarily the viewer's fault right i don't know it's and so like i i don't, I don't really like the the smugness of lynch 
of Lynch fans, I guess, more than Lynch films, where it's like, well, no, you don't understand. These are brilliant movies. And if they don't seem that way to you, it's because you don't understand them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It depends which movie it is for me. Like, I can see Wild at Heart just being a nonsense movie where there's... I mean, I think Wild at Heart's a really fun movie, but that's honestly all it is for me. I don't look at it as for any deeper meaning. Interesting. Mulholland Drive has so much going on in there, which the first time I saw it, I said, fuck this movie. Second time I saw it, I understood a little bit more, and then ten times later, it's become <laughs> a masterpiece to me. And it's... He's got like... And it's it's like that in a lot of his other movies, like Eraserhead, too, um, where you... The more you watch it, the more you figure stuff out. And that's just like, if you are open to that, I think there's a lot of people that are just like, yeah, I just don't have the willingness to do that to find more things i don't know mm-hmm. it's a subjective thing obviously and, but. yeah like i'm obviously I'm, i think i'm speaking more to a sort of exclusionary like identity based uh approach to media criticism mm-hmm. where like people like lynch films because it makes them feel like they're better than people who don't like lynch films or who don't right. understand lynch right. films and fuck that right like and and so like maybe part of why i like elephant man is because it seems like it dispenses with that like this is a movie that i could feel so sort of intimately right off the bat without having to sort of like do the bullshit of like well like let me unpack this yeah i generally agree i mean they're you know again except for the beginning and end i think it's kind of a common thing to say about this movie you know like oh this is the least lynch film other than mm. the straight story uh which is just as far as i can a tell kind story. of a heartwarming tale yeah I, I have not seen it that is one of the few lynch films i haven't seen um, but but this movie, I mean, for the kind of core 90% of it is kind of devoid of any weird lynchness. Um, you yeah, know, there's some common themes there. There are some really, like, really good, really well-realized, uh, somewhat lynchian motifs that, that build towards and, and sort of flesh out the universe and the, the movie's theme, in my opinion. They're just not dealt with the same way. Like, I think the, the industrialization of London... Um, that is the... Same thing with a racer head. Yeah, there's general. a through line there. That for is an sure. aspect of that film that I think is not maybe talked about as much. Um, racer head, you get the themes of growing up and fatherhood and, and being afraid of uh, maturing. Um, I think that's pretty pretty evident. Um, I think a racer head is also definitely about how modern society can kind of grind a person down. Um, and I think this is too to some extent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I that was super noticeable to me. There's this there's a point in this movie, um, I want to say like seventy percent through, where they just cut away from the A plot action entirely to show shirtless machine workers in a factory. Mm-hmm. Like I think they're like shoveling mm-hmm. coal or like hitting something with hammers or like th- something. And like industrialization is all over this movie. Like in the first scene when um Treves walks to the circus, he like walks past like like really almost uh cartoonishly overdone factories, right? With like like spewing black smog and yeah. like I think there are gears at one point, though I might be making that up. There's water running and fire uh, yeah. bursting out of just doorways and holes. Yeah. yeah. And the the sort of like mechanization of modern life is is uh inescapable in this movie. And like sort of the the um disfigurement and, and sort of twisting of bodies uh more broadly hmm. uh as well, which like obviously there's a through line there with the elephant man himself. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of that. There's the you know uh, like there's the wiry workman shoveling coal. Yeah, or that was doing. a big there scene was, for me. Like I, their bodies. I don't know. Maybe I was. They were very old. Were to- Most of them were old men, yeah. but they were kind and of they like were toiling, torn. and you could yeah. see the like the stresses and traumas of, of the 
hard work on their bodies. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very much the machinist from Eraserhead. You know, the guy pulling the levers. Um, no? No one? I have seen you the movie, but I don't remember that specific Yeah, I remember that. Character. The guy pulling the levers, sending a... I don't know, it's a big trippy... Some trippy bullshit, but uh, <laughs> it's good. Um, but yeah, yeah, that that is, a, I think, a common theme in a lot of his films. And yeah. I, I, I think mean, Twin Peaks, too. Yeah, I think it's specifically in this movie, it's something that, at least in my opinion, we were meant to be thinking about that was supposed to kind of make up the backdrop through which we, we viewed this story. Um, and it becomes like, to me, it became a story about um, utilization and exploitation and like how we view people as tools or as something to um, exactly yeah. as, as products to create um, hmm. as something to be um, mechanized and how uh, John Merrick's status was so defined by what he could produce uh, both before and after his introduction into society where he was used in so many different capacities um, first at, like as a spectacle mostly right before and after mm-hmm. uh the sort of i feel like i'm talking too much so no, I, I, I apologize I, I, the only thing that i'm thinking is like that is there and mm. it's true but it just it wasn't it was maybe more sentimental in some respects than i was hope, like almost expecting from the movie or hoping from the movie having like knowing that it was a david lynch film going in and not knowing much else about it uh Specifically, there's a scene where Dr. Treves sits down and, like, says the main – he, like, speaks aloud the dynamic between between the two characters and says, like, I pulled him from – I forget the exact lines, but I pulled him from the show, from this freak show, and, like, and now I'm just, like, getting lauded for it. Now I'm getting attention. Now people are coming yeah. to see me. I'm getting more patience. Uh, what does that make me kind of thing? And, mm-hmm. he, like, the fact that he said that aloud even though it was very – I don't know. It was Maybe I it was the, something like a combating of the script to the direction for me. But it, it didn't feel deft to me. It felt a little Interesting. clumsy. So I, the reason that works for me is because I don't think that the movie – that doesn't – him vocalizing that does not rescue him from it. Like that no, doesn't, no. That doesn't make, him, make it all right what he did. And like the movie does not have a like – extremely sentimental view on him or what he did in my opinion i think it has maybe more of a sentimental view than than you're allowing okay yeah because, I, I think like, i disagree with that reading with harry's reading or? yeah i think i i think there's a there's a i saw this a lot when just kind of researching this film that there is uh there's a lot of people that that try and i don't know that seem to me like maybe trying to put maybe a bit of a, a kind of typical kind of lynch subversion into uh this film you know like kind of the end of blue velvet you know has everybody seen blue velvet i have seen it don't remember the end oh man do i want to oh yeah yeah there's a scene near the end of blue velvet that is kind of famously known for being overly sentimental to the point where you look at it and you go okay this is kind of this is satire this is mulholland drive yeah mulholland drive definitely does um and I, I think that's true in Blue Velvet. I guess I didn't get that as much from this movie. Like hmm. with this movie, I felt very sympathetic. Uh, I felt quite a bit of empathy. Um, and I, I think there certainly is the theme of exploitation in regard to Treves. I don't think that when I was watching it, I felt okay equating him to um, oh, who was the kind of the circus performer. At the Bites. beginning, but Bites. yeah, I don't think I felt okay equating them. I think I there's yeah, I don't think the equation is is necessarily there. But I don't think that this movie takes. 
I, I, that movie is interested in this dynamic, like unquestionably, mm-hmm. right? I agree. Um, and there, if not equating Treves with bites, it is equating uh, Treves with a larger society around Treves. I do the think yes. Queen of uh, Scotland is it? Queen Victoria of Wales. Yes. Yeah, Wales. Queen I think. Um, and the the actress. Um, who is like the the famous stage actress Karen who, who befriends um, Merrick, uh, as well as society as a whole. He Merrick sort of becomes this instrument for the practicing and demonstration of empathy mm-hmm. by a lot of the wider sort of like upper class, which is like there's also an interesting class statement there, right? Where like like as soon as Merrick is inducted into society, he is made this sort of spectacle for the practicing of empathy where all, only very high class people come to him yep. and sit down and have tea with them with him and the the um the effect there is always to be like look at how like high-minded these people are and and how wonderful it is that right. they can see past him in this way when in in effect what they're doing is like it's for themselves yeah and so there was just watching this in the theater i i don't know if you two remember it but there's a specific scene where uh john merrick is sitting down with i think it's maybe you know kind of a compilation of different scenes but you know where he's sitting down with nobles and talking with them pouring tea and, and in the theater there's one scene where he's having tea with uh <laughs> you know a couple this. And a guy, it's like, it is a very awkward scene, and the guy starts laughing. Yeah. A guy in the theater starts laughing, and I think, Harry, you were kind of especially <laughs> upset, just like, dude, what the fuck? Wait, wait, <laughs> is, it, is this a scene where, like, the woman starts trembling with her cup? Yeah. And he's, and John is pouring them tea? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and Okay, because I wasn't in the theater with you guys, so. And it's, it's. I felt extremely awkward during that scene, and but right. there, is yeah. a, there is a very dark humor there, but the humor is totally pointed towards society. It is totally a critique of society. Yeah, that that is kind of really the only and that was areas where he's accepted. To to me, that was sort of the um, and like maybe I'm being on my bullshit and I'm making apologies for this movie, <laughs> but like that's that's why sentimentality to me was warranted for Treves and for the actress. Where like I felt very sympathetic for them, right? Like I don't think yeah. what they were doing was necessarily selfless or necessarily. Um, beyond reproach in the movie's eyes, but I did find them to be very, like, powerful, moving, good people, right? Um, And good at characters. But, like, that was the sort of tragedy, right? Is that these are people who, like, the only means of expression that they have for humanizing John Merrick and, and, like, doing something selfless is itself that compromised. Like, by, by bringing John into this place, Treves is still benefiting from what he wanted like he didn't want it first of all he didn't want it to be a selfless action at first but like he was he wanted to make his bones medically mm-hmm. but but also like even after he made that transition and was like man John's like a human being and I like want to do like it's just the right thing to treat him that way right. he was still sort of benefiting from it just like the actress wound up benefiting from her relationship with John and like that was an interesting tragedy to me too right is that like like is it possible to do something selfless really? Like, I don't know. It was interesting. Um, and it, it was sort of like it was still a positioning of, of power over John where it was still like you were still a tool for us to explore mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of the, the dawning realization that that's what they're doing is exploiting I, him. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's what the movie was. I just don't, I don't see why he had to say it aloud. Like it was just – it's still bothering me. Well, that was written into the script for him to say, like, 
he moved from the freak show to the hospital, and yet, like, is he any better off? Are we treating him any better than – like, is this, is this any more in line with what John wants well, than I, what John like, had before? Maybe the reason it works for me is I don't think that is the ultimate point of the movie. I think that's a that's a that's like a point B to get to hmm. the, the final sort of okay. indictment. But anyway. It was okay. very deliberate, okay. too, in its style. Like, it was playing off 1940s melodramas in a way with its black and white style and the way everything was framed. It felt like a play in a way. I felt like some of the dialogue was also playing off that because everything in the 1940s and that type of dramatic um, you know, period piece dramas are like that. Like they are explaining aloud. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that ties into it. And that's not an excuse yeah, for bad writing. I know that it's super microscopic for me to complain about that. But it just yeah. it sticks out of my mind him sitting there looking blankly into space and just saying the thesis of at least his character like he was. He was equating himself with mm-hmm. Mike. See, even if the movie wasn't you know, mm-hmm. doing that, he was. Uh, and it. I didn't see the movie go on to either like forgive or indict him for that. And maybe that's supposed to be like, he's a more complicated character. He doesn't deserve blame for like removing a person from a bad situation. And he doesn't receive praise uh, for Mm -hmm. removing a bad person from a bad, for a good person from a bad situation. It just, I don't know. In the moment it didn't jive with me. I think because it felt so old fashioned to me in the style it played, it it worked for me. And also that and Anthony Hopkins can just um, say expository dialogue and it doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> that guy can so act, good at it. act his so goatee like, off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a really great performance from both him and John Hurt did a great job, I thought. Yeah, yeah. And John Hurt didn't get the Oscar, which is crazy. Or Anthony Hopkins. This actually won no Oscars. It was nominated for eight. Won nothing because Raging Bull was in the picture and won everything. But, um, which is crazy. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Which sucks. I mean, this movie deserved, John Hurt deserved best, best um, Best actor. David Lynch, I don't know, maybe best director, but I don't know who else was coming. Raging Bull's a pretty good movie. It is. I should watch it again. Um, it's probably better than this movie. I like this movie a lot. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, can I, I... I kept thinking, was it during... There's a scene with the, the actress when they're, they're kind of... Her and uh, uh, Merrick are kind of going back and forth reading a play. Was that Romeo, Romeo and Juliet? Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. yeah. I kept thinking about Romeo and Juliet after this, and maybe it's just because it was in the film, but... I kind of get the same feeling um, that I get when I, I read a lot of criticism of this movie in that Romeo and Juliet, the kind of the main thing that I, whenever I took college classes and we read it or even in high school, um, I think people would kind of sum up Romeo and Juliet wrong, where they would sum it up as kind of uh, a tragedy. And, and there was always this line that was always said where it's like, hey, look at these dumb kids, right? Yeah. Like, these kids Which is are, not at all what the play wants you to think about them. <laughs> there's elements of that, right? Like, yeah. yeah, they are they really in love? No, probably not. I mean, that's kind of how mm, romances mm, were written mm, back all then. Right. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a history of that. But there certainly are kind of satirical elements uh, in that play. Yeah, for sure. At the same time, though, I think summing... Romeo and Juliet up as Romeo, Romeo and Juliet up as uh, a play, just kind of about how foolish love is, is kind of missing the greater kind of emotional core yeah. of that story. Well, and, and also, like in my opinion, sorry to hijack no, your ahead. point, uh, like definitely mischaracterizes the relationship between Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, which like I think that's as, fair. as silly as it is, is absolutely something that on my reading is supposed to be beautiful. The point and that I would always bring up is I'd always say, so compared to what? I mean, everybody else in that play is pretty selfish, has their own desires. I mean, the nurse comes off kind of badly. The uh, the pharmacist 
you know, ends up kind of killing them, right? I mean, everybody else in that play is, is warring, fighting with each other, and they, to me, stand out as this kind of shining example of, like, pure emotion. Yeah, what was uh, Romeo's first girlfriend's name? Oh, Rosalind? Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, um, yes. There's a there's a part when, when Romeo is introduced, he, this is a total tangent. No, let's <laughs> go, we're going on this. Do you know what podcasts are made uh, of? When I... Ooh. We just bumped oh, the stuff. table. Yeah. Uh, Jesus when, Christ. When Romeo's introduced, he's trying to write sonnets about Rosalind and failing. He can't do it. Like, he can't complete one that, that works for him. He keeps getting the meter wrong. Or, or maybe not the meter, but, like, he can't. And then when, when he first sees Juliet, the first thing he says is a sonnet. It's he fucking nails it, as dude. A sonnet. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, like, it's amazing, like, to yeah. do that with language. Like, the, he sees Juliet, and it completes for him. And, like, for that to happen in, like... Oh, man. So that, the reason, it turns out yeah. that Romeo and Juliet is a good play. <laughs> yeah. And the reason I brought that up is is I got a hint of that. I think that, that we as modern viewers kind of want to assert some sort of, uh, I don't know, negative reading of a lot of the films that we get. Or we kind of want to... We want to feed our sarcastic kind of make it cynical, side. yeah, yeah, and make it cynical. Oh, and that I'm at, and that to a T. Maybe that's what's ham- hampering but, me. Here, I mean, there's hindering. there's questions about this film I'll that give feed you into that, right? Like the the question of you know exploitation. I think is one that is a theme in this movie. Um, but I saw a, a discussion of people on the internet where they were saying the the theater scene where uh, everybody kind of stands up and applauds John Merrick. Mm-hmm. And they were reading that as ironic, and they were saying that, oh, it's ironic that everybody is celebrating this person that they, they don't know. They are celebrating him because of his disability, uh, purely based on sight. They haven't talked to him. They haven't met him. Uh, he is just kind of pointed out by the actress who is the mm-hmm. star of the show. Um, and that that's kind of a deeply sarcastic, t- typical Lynch scene that's kind of undermining what the, is happening on the surface. And I just thought that was like such a negative, cynical reading. You think, sure. you think it deserves a little bit more genuine, like, interesting interpretation? I, I interpreted a lot of this movie as very genuine in the way I didn't. Yeah. I, def- I think I might have read that scene the way that you're saying. Really? Or I don't know. It's complicated, right? Like, like because I'm like the actress and like um, Treves. On one level, that should be commended, but on the other hand, it there are like hard limitations to that empathy, right? Like th- that's an exercise of empathy within a limited and safe environment. And meanwhile, the the mechanization yeah. outside continues. And meanwhile, people are breathing that smog and dying on the streets. I, I guess I, I don't see that scene as saying that everything's all right with society. So much it is saying, you know. It is okay to celebrate someone who often goes uncelebrated. Sure. Um, I think that maybe, and I'm just coming to this conclusion now, but, like, maybe there is a way to reconcile that, that sort of, like, like genuine, yeah. commendable um, uh, sentimentality, for lack of a better word, with the sort of indictment. Uh, in, in Because in my reading of this movie, this is less about pointing the finger so much as it is talking about how... We and this is an interesting thing. We're going to do a Koyana Scotsy podcast later. Which oh is, my this god! Is sort you've of locked us into it. Now. Interesting. Hell yeah! Interesting double. We can totally just cut that out. <laughs> yeah, cut that if out. We don't want to do that. Um, Go ahead. But there's there's an interesting through line there where it's like this is to me is a movie about how we may or may not be losing our ability to see anyone as human. <laughs> Um, Dude, the catcher in the fucking rye. The same. What other great works are people just <laughs> implant their fucking negative attitudes into? I because like the the tragedy here to me is is like that John Merrick sort of like reveals a certain poverty about 
the humans in this. So not not so much as like like it's a, it's about how we we might only be able to see one another as things to be utilized, and and how the empathy towards John Merrick is something that is only ever, except by in one instance, um, which is the other marginalized community. The, the circus workers who do the only mm-hmm. truly selfless act in this movie, which is Incredible. rescue him yeah. from, uh, yeah. which is great. That's a great it scene. It is. Um, I, I think it's worth pointing out, just tying it, because I do think you're exactly right that there is kind of a, uh, there is a sentimentality with a criticism of Right. It's, it's an interesting balance there. I think that the thing for me that I kept thinking about was the, so he is uh, throughout kind of the second half of the film building a uh, kind of, a paper, cathedral, a, a cathedral out of paper or cardboard or what have you in his room, and he can see out the window the the top of this cathedral in London. Um, but he is unable to see the rest of it, and because of his condition, he is able to he is unable to kind of go out and see what the cathedral actually looks like. So he builds this replica, and I think it's kind of telling that nothing is actually stopping him from going out and looking at it. Right? It is just that if he were to go out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he he is capable of walking, he's capable of talking. Um, he could at any time leave, but society is, he is unable to due to the reactions of people out in the world that he would obviously bump into on his way over there. There's nothing really stopping him except for just how kind of crushing society can be to people that seem odd or different. That's a reflection of also an earlier state, uh, point that this movie makes where it's revealed that John Merrick could always talk and was always literate and and uh, sapient, but he spent most of his life in utter silence because of how afraid he was of talking, uh, both because he was abused by Bites, the circus ringleader, and just maybe because nobody ever... Um, I feel like I'm always hogging. So we're no, sorry for hogging. That's what uh, I wrote. <laughs> I'm just wow. putting that mic now. It's uh, <laughs> cool, yeah. man. Anyway, uh, I was going to add because you guys were talking about um, all those themes and how it can be cyni- it can be looked at as cynical because it's Lynch, but Lynch didn't write this, did he? I don't he, know. He, he co-wrote it. Oh, he did. Oh, okay, for some reason I thought it was two other writers because it feels like very Oscar Beatty writing to me. Wow. Uh, just like on the surface, but I think Lynch took that and made it something else, which I like. Like those dream sequences in the beginning are so Lynch that I feel like he just added those on his own, and those may- might not have been in the screenplay. Did he? Did he uh, write this? He- uh, he co-wrote it with Christopher oh, okay. DeVore and Eric Berggren. Yeah, yeah. Uh, neither of whose names I know off the top of my head. I bet head. David Lynch just wrote that beginning scene. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> he probably did. Um, um, it, it leads me to another question uh, that I poured over while thinking about it, and it's less about the plot of the movie or anything, but how much David Lynch did you guys feel in this movie? How much did you see out of this movie? Was it like, that's 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 gold standard 100% Lynch that's mm-hmm. 200 proof Lynch to you or was it like sometimes yeah I mean like I said the beginning and then like the obvious like the ending scene um, those are very Lynch to me and all and we talked about the industrial settings like comparable to Eraserhead are very Lynch but other than that it didn't feel Lynch at all to me like if I would have seen this on TV and didn't know he did it um, other than those scenes I mentioned I would think it's just some director I didn't know but yeah it feels very straightforward very um, or um, old-fashioned melodrama, like almost like Douglas Sirk type films in a way. But sure, it's, I yeah. know that name. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Ingmar Bergman. No, ah, that no. guy. Um, 
Yeah, and I mean, it is it is like an Oscar movie. I think that's what Mel Brooks, this is the first movie that he produced under his production company, and that was his aim is to get this to the Oscars. Did you see that they left his name off the production credits because they were afraid that people were going to think it was a comedy? A comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, Mel, uh, uh, David Lynch, I think um, no one knew who he was after Eraserhead, really, except for the, the people that have seen it. Mel Brooks never saw Eraserhead. But some, I think the writers brought his name up to Mel Brooks, and Mel Brooks didn't know who the hell he was. He went and saw Eraserhead, and like they told David Lynch that, like, okay, Mel, Mel's going to go see Eraserhead. If he likes it, maybe he'll sign you on to direct the film. And David Lynch is like, well, I guess I'm not doing the film. <laughs> like, there's no way. He's like, Realist, And David then Lynch. Mel Brooks, yeah, he's like, okay, nice knowing you guys. But Mel Brooks ran out of theater and just loved it and was like, David Lynch, like, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. I want you to direct this movie. What a mensch. Yeah. Which is weird because you'd see Eraserhead and, like, would not think he'd the right choice. So I, I don't – but Mel Brooks has uh, got a unique vision. So Yeah. Interesting um, to think about the reasons why he was put onto this, like, yeah. to direct this movie. Yeah. Probably because people were – it's like a – an uncomfortably odd story. It was an oddity. It was like he was part of a freak show. He was he's a you know an anomaly in history. And mm-hmm. thinking, well, David Lynch knows knows weird stuff. Let's let's let him direct this movie. Yeah, go ahead. I think this feels like a David Lynch movie. Um, I think I, I guess I'll disagree because I, I David Lynch is a to me always seemed like a director that's kind of unfairly defined by his surrealism or his. Sure. In, yeah. Just inaccessibility parts. Yeah. Inaccessibility. Yeah. The odd parts in his works. I, I think a lot of his movies um, aren't that so much. I mean, you know, Twin Peaks is remembered for you know the the Red Room and some pretty horrific stuff and Fire Walk with Me. But most of Twin Peaks is just a soap opera. Uh, not even like a satire on soap opera, but a soap opera. Worth mentioning that David Lynch wasn't involved with. A good part of that series, right? Like the he, he, the he, was, he was a showrunner, but sure. But he, even the, I mean, the, yeah. But even the first season, I mean, you know, ten like percent yeah. of that is the weirdness that I, yeah. people attribute to David Lynch. Typically, um, you know, the, there is a lot of sentimental stuff in some of his. That's definitely true. Mulholland Drive too. I mean, Mulholland Drive is an interesting one because I think the sentimental stuff is kind of working at something different right. there. Wild at Heart ends with a like street side brawl that then Nick Cage ends up like jumping they're over cars, on top of cars to go kiss with his girlfriend, yeah. right? Yeah. With his wife. That their whole relationship in general is sort of like almost Romeo and Juliet esque in that it is supposed to be a very pure thing in Maybe a, very a little more graphic than thing. that. It's, but yeah. it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Man, it cagey. depends on how you stage Romeo and Juliet. You don't uh, know. Yeah, I guess there's a few few different productions. You're talking about the Baz Lerman film, right? <laughs> Everybody's talking, Romeo, I'm talking about plus Juliet. Yeah, <laughs> there's not enough backflips, random backflips in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Damn, so true. Uh, Again, depending on the cat, I could see Mercutio could do a. F- that's true. Maybe there are in the Basil Lerman one. Liarte- aren't Liartes. Liartes is not. He eating. bites his thumb at you while yeah. flipping backwards. <laughs> that movie fucking rules. I love that movie. The Basil Lerman movie? <laughs> no, no, no. Wild at Heart. Oh, yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too, no, man. Fuck that Basil Lerman shit, hits. dude. <laughs> no, fuck Basil Lerman altogether. Uh, <laughs> Aaron, was that the end of your answer? Did uh, you? So, yeah, I guess just in general. Um, I'd say this feels like a Lynch film, uh, specifically some of the themes and such. Um I will say that the parts that are the most kind of stereotypically lynchy are my least favorite fart parts of the movie. So, like uh, those dream sequences. Shots. I like the dream sequence in the middle uh, with the uh, you know people working hard at work on a hammer mill or stuff. Um, yeah, that is that is pretty classic Lynch. But yeah, the, the beginning and end, I actually maybe thought the bullying didn't need is, is as pretty much. lynchy. Uh, yeah, the, like extended scenes of bullying, which are extremely difficult to watch. 
the uh, one where the, where the guy sells tickets to yeah. come. Yeah. There are there are a couple of different ones, right? It's always that's that one guy scene and, in there that's one of the hardest things to watch yeah. um, in particular, right? But uh, yeah, so I would say this is a Lynch film. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Factually, it's Lynch, it is David <laughs> I, Lynch made this movie. Objectively, I haven't seen every Lynch movie. I don't know a, a ton about his based his on what you know filmography. I, mean, I know you've I, seen a good few. Of them. Um, I don't know. I I definitely think that the sent- sentimentality is is um, Lynch e. I think his his comfort with making characters very sympathetic like you said the thing you don't like but like i was very affected by the actress um i think that the scene in which she and merrick read romeo and juliet is like one of the most emotionally (laughs) affecting scenes i've seen in a very long time i was like weeping uh during that scene (laughs) was that Anne bancroft Um, as the actress i I know she's in the movie but like shit but i don't yeah i'm gonna because i didn't that seems like like a weird place to do that we're gonna we're looking this up uh, this uh, is a Wikipedia podcast, basically. Yeah. Um, no, that is a very affecting scene. But um, um, and Bancroft and as Bancroft. Can- yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, the last scene where they play Adagio for strings, which is like fucking unfair. Like that's oh man, it's that's oh, the saddest man. piece of music ever written. And like mm-hmm. to play it over that at, at the end, it was like over his scale model of St. After Peter's. His, yeah, and his like maybe suicide, maybe death. Um, I don't know if it's it's a, it's never been conclusively said to be a suicide in. <laughs> In real, real life. life, but like it, it read read that way to me at least yeah. uh, in part. Well, he's in, pining over like sleeping like a normal person, right. as he did like right. earlier in the movie. So, I, which is it? Which isn't also fascinating to me because I think this movie is a lot about what happens if we foreground, yeah, certain exclusionary ideas about what it means to be human, uh, which everyone in the movie does, even the people who are trying to help him. Hmm. foreground what they're saying and like you can be normal and like you yeah. can be yeah you can That's... like it, the measure of a mi- of a man is his mind which is a thing that john merrick actually used to end letters with he would say that which is fucking Damn. heartbreaking <laughs> uh but uh and like like it's it's interesting to see that that foregrounding about like this is what a person is is like an able-bodied producer right and like that's how you get status in society either with your mind in the case of Treves or with your body in the case of uh, the guard or workers mm-hmm. or um and uh, it was fascinating that like maybe that's the maybe that is the end consequence of a society which views humans as having like exclusive traits as like as humanness as this sort of list of traits about like able-bodied able-minded mm-hmm. able whatever um comprised of a certain um mentality or certain uh what am i looking for disposition i guess certain aptitude yeah um it was so funny in ebert's review sorry to bring ebert's review that's nah, cool but when he's like at the very end he's like and then at the end he just turns into like the 2001 star baby or whatever the fuck that was, <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah. like what he said well without the f word but i was like yeah he really did not get this movie uh it was hilarious but yeah that at that ending um I didn't understand that he died when I saw it. Mm-hmm. It's not I didn't clear, know. I don't think, in the yeah. movie. Mm, they don't, like, show him closing his eyes and, you know, turning blue, but, like... They definitely they, say... They, there's a line earlier in the film where someone they says, say oh, he can't lie like that, he'll right. die. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely and, true. like, the constant yeah. panning back and forth or sh- shots back and forth between the picture on his wall of the mm. kid sleeping on his side. I yeah. read that pretty clearly as... He, he he's dying whether yeah I just didn't know if it was a dream sequence it just obviously it was a dream sequence in a way but um, I just didn't know the facts behind it and sure. yeah that line like I kept that in mind but it just uh, for some reason didn't come to me um, we we interpreted that 
I know I'm solving for X now. But uh, <laughs> that that woman at the end speaking was his mother, right? That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say it's pretty Nothing fucked ever up? Nothing ever dies. Put that picture in his room. What pretty fucked up thing? The picture of the boy sleeping. Oh, oh yeah. in the hospital room. <laughs> who, would put, who would put that there? <laughs> Maybe he, he got the it fuck, himself. Dude? He had Remember how you can't sleep? Remember how you can't sleep? <laughs> hey, the one thing you can't do will you'll die. Let's put a picture up. Like, that's one of the three pictures in your room. Yeah, I just hung the picture. It's not even a big room. It's not like dude has a fucking gallery collection in there. A little odd is all I'm saying. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm glad. I, I love that you loved this movie as much as you did, Harry. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, I would say I, something I, I feel very passionate about, the idea that we should be able to define the people that we are based on our own terms rather than own criteria your own set of rules but anyway that's i liked it a lot i wouldn't say it comes near like holland driver Eraserhead, or wild at heart or a lot of Lynch's films. Did you feel it was just as good as some of those movies? Uh, it's interesting. The second time I watched Mulholland Drive, I didn't like it nearly as much as really? I did the first time. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, Aaron, you were it? there. Um, Listen, you fucker. Insult <laughs> Mulholland Drive. So I don't know. I'd have to think about it Damn, more. Damn, it's the complete opposite. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Mulholland Drive ended up putting a lot of blame on women wanting to be movie stars on my second watch that I didn't like at all. Uh, that was like the exact inverse of what I thought of it the first time. Um, hmm. But... This movie is, is like maybe a better societal indictment than even Mulholland Drive is, which is, yeah. Anyway, in case you're just joining us now, we're talking cast. about Mulholland yeah, Drive. Uh, Can we do a podcast on that now? Like a 300 episode on just Mulholland <laughs> Drive. You want me to pull it up on the computer and I we can watch it? We saw Mulholland Drive in the Trilon like that was actually last a while ago. January. Last January? I Jesus so. Christ. What is time? <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? Was that the second time you saw it here? That was the first time. Oh, okay. I saw it the second time just like a month ago or something. Oh. Uh, Aaron and I watched it. Yeah, about it. a month ago. I didn't see it with you guys any of those times. Yeah. Well, that was good shit, I think. Are we, Are done? we done? Is this it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we're, done. Like we're, we're probably cracking the hour mark. I mean, if there's nothing else that you guys... I, nothing less yeah. than your bags. This is a, I, I don't know. This is oh, a great movie. Another it's weird trivia fact. Feel stuff. This movie is the reason that there's now a makeup um, award, best makeup award oh, at the Oscars. Because they didn't have it when The Elephant Man um, was nominated. And they saw that and be like, well, this is obviously a huge, important part of films and filmmaking. Like, more mm-hmm. important than the sound design, which we have and stuff like that. But, so, yeah, that's the reason, which is really that's interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the makeup is incredible. I think they had to shoot every other day because the hours of, like, putting the makeup on and off of him were so yeah. crazy. That he couldn't eat all day with his mouth like that and stuff. So, yeah, it was a weird schedule. Uh, yeah. Probably the best makeup of that time. I mean, for sure. 1980? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean... You had like horror movies that I'm sure had creepy yeah. costumes and gory effects, but nothing that was so consistently like strong. They were able to throw this human around rooms and like pour water on his face, and no, like yeah, no, nothing flinched about the makeup or prosthetics. So yeah, except for the thing, man, the thing. You've seen the thing, the John Carpenter. I've seen the thing. Oh, fuck, that is the best. That was 80s. Yeah, right? that was later, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was a great decision to shoot this movie in black and white. I feel like that was really I smart. I don't know that it could have been any other way. Like it would not have been, like yeah. even, even the even the even not being uh, as even, positive on it as everybody else is. I, I can agree with that. Like not even just from a cinematography perspective, but just from like a fictional framing point mm-hmm. of view. Like John said, with the sort of um, yeah, well, yeah, in like ahead. a technical way too. There, I, I read about this about how if it was in color, how detail the make would look and how just bad it would look like interesting yeah yeah probably that's probably just like a technical thing you're right the establishing shots all those factory shots whenever i watch i've only watched a couple seasons but of peaky blinders and everything's colorful and everything's like alive and a light doesn't feel like a good part of the period you ever see the the recreation of what uh like 
I think Greek statues would actually look like because they're all white and marbly, and supposedly they were actually they, they with color. Bronze. They were built out of copper. The originals. Yeah, but I suppose I saw. You're talking about Roman sculptures. Am I yeah. talking about Roman sculptures? Well, Romans were uh, marble. They well, copied same the Greek group of people. I don't. Uh, I'm. Whoa. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I saw a picture on the internet that was like a I very colorful. You saw that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrifying. My whole notion <laughs> of history. Just I don't think got, I've seen that. I know yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of sculptures are um, like if you see them in the actual museums, they're going to be like seventy percent made up by the people in the museum because there'll be really? like part of a breastplate and an arm, and they're like, "This is Hercules standing with like the bear fur on his or the golden." I'm forgetting the Hercules myth, the Nemean lion on his back, and like with a snake at his foot. They're just like this is this is probably what this looked like. Yeah, here's a uh, an IO9 article. Ultra light, ultra violent light reveals how Greek statues really looked. And uh, I'm gonna dig into that once we hit fucking stop hideous, record. Dude. Anyway, Google that. Uh, yeah, I guess the Elephant Man. Everybody, a fine David. Lynch yeah, um, <laughs> I guess I've talked way too much, but I, I'll just say like in my opinion, this movie just really works on like a plot level. Like I found the characters all compelling. The plot was compelling um, and affecting, and. Uh, fascinating and like i was i thought it was like fun to watch and made me feel really well you know what i mean (laughs) i I think it was a compelling thing to watch even as simply like a movie without having to it is fun and uh, analyze it yeah uh does anybody want to call i want to get just like a one sentence from each of you guys there you are you can already have yours one sentence on what you thought of this movie uh haunting one word (laughs) Uh, one of David Lynch's classics. I had actually heard one word, but you said one sentence, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. You, are, you like, did us one better. Yeah, you threw it up. You there. did it, man. It's, you, haunting. Aaron, That's it. You I'm going to follow up question. What David Lynch movie isn't a classic then? Uh, Dune is not a classic. <laughs> wasn't that like Dune his is next not movie? Close to a classic. What? I've never seen it, but wasn't that like his next movie after this? Dune was his third movie, yes. And then Blue Velvet. Yeah, and then Wild at Heart, and then Holland Drive, Lost Highway. No, Twin. Yeah, Twin Peaks was after that. That would make sense. So yeah, I guess Mulholland Drive was one of his last ones. Dumb. But uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, this is better than uh, Fire Walk with Me, and better than Dune. And I you heard it seen here first. Lost Highway, The Straight Story, or Inland Empire. So I'll let you, you should watch those. Dude, Lost Highway is fucking nuts. If you didn't like Mulholland Drive, or you don't like Mulholland Drive, you're going to hate Lost Highway. I like Mulholland Drive quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> Harry, earlier you just said, I hate Mulholland Drive. I oh, heard yeah. you say that. It's, it's on, on the, the podcast. We'll yeah, it's on tape. Pull it back. Yeah. We'll I'm not just, sure like, I like Lost Highway. Assemble it from... I'll, I'll tell I the producer in the booth. Mulholland Drive. <laughs> we can assemble that. All right. More the second time. I saw it. Yeah. Uh, you didn't say hey, your one sentence. Hey, you didn't say your one Give sentence. Give a sentence, you fucking... Yeah. Oh, um... Mm, too much plot, not enough feeling. I wow. fucking end on that. I, 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 I still don't feel as strongly positive about it as I think any of you probably. Uh, maybe it was the mood I was in when I watched it. Maybe I am just like too cynical, too bullheaded a person. But I'm, I don't know. I was not really feeling what he wanted me. I still like, I really appreciated, and this is way more, way more than one sentence, but I really appreciated how, like how much, I know I said at the top, that I didn't see as much David Lynch as I thought I would, but it was like early in his major film making career, so I guess like maybe that was to be expected. It's crazy to think there's too much plot. I think it's the most simple plot of all of David Lynch's movies. Or do you think too much like relying on plot? Not too much relying like, on plot. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't think that the plot is bad necessarily, mm-hmm. but like 
I'm not going to say again how I didn't like the specific parts of the script. Like, yeah, and the plot and the, and that kind of tie very closely together. Um, uh, I, I love how somehow David Lynch has always kind of had that obsession with electricity and how in a movie that's set in an era without electricity, he's just got like burning flame everywhere mm-hmm. and water spewing from walls. Have you seen the Mark Kermode uh, interview with David Lynch? Holy shit. No. Classic clip. Uh, there's a David Lynch is like the hardest interviewer or interviewee of all time. Yeah. And there's Eraser a Razorhead is my most spiritual film. Explain that. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> there's an even even better. Uh, there's a Mark Kermode uh, critic in the UK. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Good I know. Film critic. Um, and he's interviewing David Lynch, and he gives some long-winded question, which he he knows. He even says like, "Okay, I know I shouldn't ask this like this, but there's this theme of electricity in your films, and Ooh. for me, I've always taken that to represent." brain synapses kind of firing just through the body is there any and he goes on for like two more sentences and he says Mm. is there any truth to that and David Lynch just goes no (laughs) that's it that's it incredible that's how he talks to he goes no (laughs) like that just really everybody quit your best David Lynch impression (laughs) my best David Lynch you know Jason the thing is I fucking hate your podcast yeah mine is just me too David Gordon Cole from Twin Peaks what (laughs) yeah Cooper, I I need your help. (laughs) 